Well, good morning. I'm going to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Uh, we'll read here in a moment in verse 11. So glad to be with you again this morning. Today's my son's 16th birthday, so Wes is right there, and you can tell him happy birthday. And uh, uh, Grandma and Grandpa, my mom and dad are here today, and uh, they they arrived with uh, a gift a card for Wes for his birthday, and inside was the title to the old my dad's old pickup. So, so uh, Wes is having a good day. Hey, Wes, I, my dad didn't give me a car. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, speaking of my parents, uh, you may have I, you may have a chance to speak with them after the service. I don't know, but uh, um, they would tell you that I don't know if they've ever thought of of what the problem was with me as a kid because I was definitely a problem. But uh, this text made me see that that one way you might articulate this is that. From a very young age, I wanted all the benefits of adulthood uh, without the time put in to grow up and mature. I, I wanted to be an adult from, you know, what, mom, five, you know, five years old or so. And that's important for our text today because uh, that's actually what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with something that uh, theologians refer to as an overrealized eschatology. And I'll, I'll explain all that here in a moment. But let's get into God's word together. Read beginning in verse 11, Luke chapter 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they'd gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, here is your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because... You've been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming that I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has will be given more. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So the problem that Jesus is uh, seeking to address in this parable, as I mentioned a moment ago, is something that theologians refer to as an over-realized eschatology. And let me explain quite simply, an over-realized eschatology has to do with expecting 
the kingdom to come too easily, too quickly, without any blood, sweat, and tears, right? Uh, that, that's, that's what an over-realized eschatology is. And so as a kid wanting to be treated like an adult when I was five years old, I had an over-realized Christcatology, uh, you know, had this expectation that you should treat me like I'm 40, you know, when I'm five. Um, now, it may sound, at least initially, when I talk about something like an over-realized eschatology, that that's extraordinarily abstract, and certainly no, none of the good folks in this room would ever deal with that problem. But let me say, first of all, that, that in our culture right now, especially when it comes to our religious culture in the United States, uh, over-realized eschatology is a huge problem, and it's most often found, uh, most famously or infamously found, in something called the prosperity gospel. Right? That's, that's what the prosperity gospel's error fundamentally is. They promise all the health and the wealth of the coming kingdom here and now and eschew the necessity for suffering and discipline and even work in sanctification. So that's the root of that error is, is what Jesus is talking about here in verse 11. They expected the kingdom to appear immediately. Now, that's something that you and I deal with. I, I don't know if you realize that you deal with that, but there will be many instances in your life when you will essentially grow weary in doing good. Right? Galatians speaks to that. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in the in proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And the reason that, that verse is in the Bible is because you do give up. The reason that, uh, that that verse is in the Bible is because we do grow weary in doing good. We do expect it all to come more easily than it does. We do expect God's promises to, to simply materialize in our lives, eschewing the necessity for discipline and suffering and, and, and blood, sweat, and tears. That's something that we all deal with. And this parable is going to help us with that. Jesus is going to help us get a grip on the fact that that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom doesn't just appear immediately. And so I've outlined a few things that this parable can teach us, and we'll just start working through those. And the first one is this. We need to dream big and work small. We need to dream big and work small. In order to avoid the error of an over-realized eschatology, we need to dream big. And, and don't make the mistake of, of dreaming small, right? We need to dream big, but we need to work small. The truth is we want everything to appear uh, big, bold, dramatic, fully realized, and sometimes God is faithful to make that so more than we would expect Him to. But many times, most of the time, the kingdom consists of the small stuff. Right? The kingdom consists of the small stuff. God's redemptive work seems to, as you look throughout Scripture, involve a lot of Him turning small things into big things. And it starts at the very beginning and moves all the way through Scripture. God takes dirt, turns it into man. He takes a rib of man, turns it into woman. The whole divine mandate is for two people to rule and subdue the earth by being fruitful and multiplying. Multiplying is a major theme in the Scriptures. God taking small things and turning them into big things. He sets a, a man apart named Abraham and from Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed and his descendants will be like the sand of the sea. Uh, consistently, God is saying throughout Scripture, I take small things and through my wise providential care, turn those small things 
into big things. Uh, how many how many improbable births are in Scripture where we see a little baby born and and he's about probably might not even survive or wasn't supposed to have been born and he's born and he grows and grows and grows into the hero of the story. That's that's God's kind of message throughout redemptive history is He takes small things and turns them into big things and yet so often in our lives. We eschew the small things. We don't notice the small things. We don't devote ourselves to the small things. We don't seek faithfulness in the small things. But the truth is, is that if we're going to avoid the error of an over-realized eschatology, we've got to dream big, but we've got to work small. In fact, a couple chapters prior to Luke 19, the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, increase our faith. And you know what Jesus says? This isn't a, a faith-size problem. He says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do amazing things. Jesus is saying over and over again, even through his life in which he was born, taking on the form of a servant, humbly incarnating as a baby into Bethlehem, Jesus is saying over and over and over again, small things become big things. That's what God does. So we want to dream big, but we want to work small. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is given three, well, ten servants a very small amount of money. He calls it, actually, in the text, very little. Uh, the, the ruler in this parable is given ten servants a very small amount of money. And uh, that's a probably, uh, just so you know, in, in terms of currency, we're probably talking about three months' wages back then for a laborer. Or, you know, like like a one-bedroom apartment in Lenexa for a week. Uh, uh, you know, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's a relatively small amount. I mean, it's not inconsequential, but it's relatively small. The ruler thinks of it as small. And what we see is that these servants turn, the faithful ones anyway, turn that into multiplication. And that's just kind of another consistent scriptural theme we see. Faithfulness is multiplication, right? And so these two servants who are faithful, who are shown to be faithful, multiply that, one of them into ten and one of them into five. And then it says that when the ruler came back, he says to them, you've been faithful in a little, now I will give you much. Here are ten cities or here are five cities. Now, I think that's important. Let me, let me see if I can become a little eschatologically geeky for a moment here. So sometimes in the Christian life, we expect too much too soon. That's kind of what this parable is about. And sometimes we don't expect enough. That's a problem too, right? Sometimes we don't expect enough from this life. Just in the previous chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, no one who leaves me will not be blessed in this world. Everyone who leaves, leaves, uh, everyone who leaves their families, their homes, etc., will be blessed in this life and in the life to come. Like sometimes we expect too much. Sometimes we expect too little. How do we walk this line where we can dream big in this life, but also work small? I think this parable is instructive in one particular way. The truth is, is that their work was more fruitful than you would expect. Changing on a short time horizon, changing one, changing $10,000 into $100,000, that's an impressive act. Like, I wish I could do that. If I knew how to do that in a short period of time, I would totally do that. Uh, it's impressive. There, there's, a, there's, there's more happening here than you, you might expect. 
they are being faithful and God is blessing them in bigger ways than they would expect. But things don't get really crazy good until the ruler comes back. Right? So, so there's a kind of surprising fruitfulness before the ruler returns. And that's surprising and good and big. And it's bigger than we would often hope for. But then there's this crazy level of multiplication when the ruler returns. And I think that's how we're supposed to live in the kingdom. We really should be ambitious. We should dream big. We should be expecting more out of God in this life than we do right now. Honestly, that's, that's probably true. And we should do the work necessary to see as much happen as possible in this life. But the truth is, is that things get crazy when Jesus returns. When the ruler comes back, there's, a, there's some multiplication before, impressive multiplication. One mina becomes ten. But when the ruler comes back, Ten mina becomes ten cities. Right? Right? So how do, we, how do we live in this kingdom while also looking forward to Jesus' return? We have to remember that like God's going to surprise us in this life. He's going to do more than we can ask or imagine in this life. That's true. But when he gets back, it will pale in comparison. So that we should simultaneously have an optimistic expectation for God's work in this world while also understanding that no matter how good it gets, and it could get really good when Jesus comes back to create the new heavens and the new earth, when the ruler returns, even the best thing that's ever happened in this world and this in our work in the kingdom will pale in comparison. It will exponentialize and we will just, wow! Right? So that, that's, that's one of the ways it's going to help us live optimistically and expectantly in this world while also having that Maranatha spirit that is longing for the return of Jesus. We have big expectations, but we also know that no matter how great things get here, they are going to be so much better when Jesus returns. A second point would be this. Work hard, but stay humble. You don't get these kinds of returns without being aggressive. I mean, you, to, to turn 1 into 10, you've really got to hustle. Uh, it takes a lot of tenacity and smarts and risk. But I want you to notice how the servants report their progress upon the ruler's return. So the ruler comes back and listen to how the servants report their progress. Verse 16 and verse 18 is where we're going to be looking. Lord, your mina has made 10 more. 16. Lord, your mina has made 5 the key I want you to see in that is your, Mina, your gift has made this or that thing. You see that? These servants have worked hard, but they don't even try to boast in their work. Because from their perspective, it was always the ruler's investment that made the money, Right? They received something totally of grace, fully apart from any boasting, not of their own merit. They were invested with a treasure, and they invested that treasure, but that treasure is what actually brought the increase. So often, there's a false humility that is really just laziness in disguise. There's a kind of, well, I'm not very smart, I'm not very creative, I'm just a mess, etc., and that is code for I'm lazy and don't like to try hard things that I'm not good at. 
I don't like to fail. I don't like to look foolish. But what you see in this text is another kind of true humility that takes great delight in exploring the provision of the Lord in new areas. There's an entrepreneurial faith. I actually talk about that a lot. There's an entrepreneurial faith. And what I mean by that is there's a constant exploring of the Lord's goodness in the world. There's a constant expectancy that as we try and as we press in and as we're creative and try to do new things and learn new things, the Lord's going to meet us there and he's going to bless us there. And if we fail, the Lord's going to catch us there. So we can work hard, but we would also want to stay humble because we would understand that anytime anything works out, it's because the Lord has been faithful. It's because of the Lord's imputed righteousness. If one day I stand before God and God says, well done, my good and faithful servant, I will say, it was all your righteousness. There's a moment in Revelation where the elders cast their crowns before the Lord. And, and many have thought that those crowns were rewards for their faithfulness on earth. And, and that they're throwing those crowns back to the Lamb saying, no, it was you, and it was only you, and it was all you, and you gave me the power and the faith to do these things. You made these things work out. So they're actually giving that back. And so it is entirely possible to work hard, be successful, and be humble if you understand that whatever's happening that's good is God. And if you understand that, in fact, the whole way that you were able to risk the whole reason that you were able to step out on the edge is because you knew you had this enormous father who would catch you if you miscalculated, if something went wrong. So that really, really, Jesus is the author of our success in every way. He gives us, he gives us the wisdom and the power and the health and the talents and the opportunities and probably connect, providentially connects those to situations in life just at the right moment. But he's also so strong and loving that we feel comfortable risking and, and, and asking for things, asking people in the world for things and knowing like if I'm rejected, if I'm told no, it's okay, I have a God who really loves me. In order to really press into this life, you have to become kind of a no-eating monster where you're like, I'm okay with being told no. I'm okay. I'm okay with being rejected. I'm okay with being told no. Well, in order to be that kind of person, you have to have a huge yes in your life. This morning as I was praying, I, I was asking the Lord if there's anything, if he had any fresh updates for me before I, <laughs> any, any amendments. And uh, uh, I just felt impressed to, to communicate this to you. Um, so if you were here this morning singing, or you just showed up this morning and you felt constrained in your love for the Lord. Your heart just feels like it is sluggish. It is, in, in whatever way, you feel like you're just constrained in your ability to love God, in, in, in your ability to engage in worship, in your ability to listen to a sermon, or whatever it is. Or this week you've seen evidences of how little you love God. Um, I just felt like the Lord would want you to know this morning that He's not constrained in His love for you. That he doesn't have any of the encumbrances that you have. Uh, he is entirely unrestrained in his love for you because of what Jesus has done in, 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 in paying for your sins and giving you his righteousness. God has no limitations in his love for you. Right? And when you know that, well, you know, you kind of feel like going out into the world and kicking a little rear end. You kind of feel like, well, 
He loves me. How bad could it get? So the third point is this. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. I think there's a little gap in between each servant's appearance. I think what's happening is, is that one servant appears, ruler deals with him. The next servant appears, ruler deals with him, so on and so forth. I think that because I have a hard time imagining this third servant saying what he said, having seen the ruler deal with the first two servants. Right? Does that make sense? So, so he says, uh, verse, verse 20, Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. Take, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, <laughs> if he'd been in the room just a moment before, he would have seen that that's exactly the opposite of who this ruler is. This ruler is not a taker. He's a giver. He, he rewards kind of marginal faithfulness. I mean, it's impressive, but it's not that awesome. Over small things with cities. Like cities. Like he gives them cities. Think about that. You will never, I don't think anyone will ever give us a city. Right? Like, like not in this world anyway. Um, but that's what he does. He, he turns good stuff into amazing stuff. This, this description that the third man has of the ruler is completely off. Now, the biblical counselor in me, now I, I'm going way too deep in this parable, so don't take this too seriously. The biblical counselor in me would hear something like this and think, you're projecting your views on the father of, of your own heart. Like, this is you. And you're pushing this on your view of God. Right? We, we always expect that God will love us the way we love him or we love others. And thank God it's way better than that. So whether the third servant was mistaken or whether he was using it as an excuse, it's all nonsense. The ruler is a giver, not a taker. I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he's being an idiot. In verse 14, Jesus introduces a group of, we'll just call them bad hombres. It isn't entirely clear where they fit in or what they have to do with the story. Now, there's a historical story that's actually true that Jesus seems to be playing off of that involved a similar situation. But in verse 14, Jesus introduces this category of people who are enemies, who are citizens, but they say, we do not want this man to rule over us. And you're reading this parable and you're thinking, well, what, what role do these people play? Because this parable seems to be mostly about these three servants. Why would Jesus introduce this this other thing over here. Well, I think there's probably at least two reasons. One is that it reminds you that these good, faithful servants had opposition as they were doing their business. So they were, they were doing the ruler's business in a territory where many of the citizens did not want that business to take place. But two, I think they're here to help us understand this third guy more clearly. You see, there's one, more than one way to be a rebel. There's w- more than one way to disobey. There's one, more than one way to reject the authority of Jesus. The people in verse 14 are doing it overtly, but the third guy is doing it subversively. He's doing it passively. Note that in verse 22, the ruler calls this third servant wicked. So let me be clear. 
in a world where God created man and woman to rule and subdue, laziness is rebellion against God. And it is a rejection of his reign over the earth. Laziness is not a small thing. Being unenterprising is not a small thing. Being a small-minded, aw slacker is a wicked thing. Giving your 20s to video games is sin. Not something I thought I was going to start talking about <laughs> 10 years. I didn't think that would be a thing 10 years ago. When Spurgeon was talking about this third guy, he said, the man who never succeeds in trade. Do you know him? I know him. He complains that he has a small head. And usually the complaint is founded on fact. He needs to follow a business. Listen to this. He needs to follow a business in which the bread and butter will be brought to his door, ready spread. And even then, unless it is cut up into pieces on his plate, he will get no breakfast. The man that is to succeed in trade in these times must have confidence, look alive, keep his eyes open, and be all there. And this guy wasn't all there, so don't be that guy. Now, I teach, uh, uh, might scare some of you to know this, but I've, I've taught students how to, to preach for years, and, uh, and one of the things I teach them is what I call pastoral jujitsu. You get your audience to agree in the first point about someone they think is not them. And then you show them in the second point that that's them. Sorry, (laughs) but that's what just happened. You see, the real point of this parable, and I'm going to prove it to you in a minute. The real point of this parable is about evangelism. That's the work that Jesus is talking about here. And the servants he's talking about here are his believers who are given the treasure of the gospel and called to be enterprising and faithful and hopeful in investing that gospel into the world. And I want to ask you, before I prove all of this to you, I want to ask you, if that's true, Which of these three servants are you? Let me prove to you why that's the case. We mentioned earlier that the purpose of this parable was that Jesus wanted to correct their over-realized eschatology. They thought the kingdom was appearing immediately. So hold that in your head, right? Put that on your right side of your brain. The thing we didn't deal with is also discussed in this text, and that's the context. You see, at the beginning of verse 11, it says, as they heard these things. And that's Luke cueing us in that this parable is meant to be connected to what happened before. And what happened before in Luke chapter 19, verse, 10 and, uh, verse 9 and 10, is Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since this man is also a son of Abraham. For... The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because this is a parable about the way the kingdom will come, and because this parable is tied into Jesus' statement about seeking and saving the lost, I feel comfortable standing up to you here this morning, being a little hard on you, 
because we need that sometimes. And telling you, this parable is about servants who call themselves servants of Jesus, but don't do the stuff that Jesus does. I've always told folks that uh, if you ever want to make church feel guilty, talk about prayer giving or evangelism. So I keep those three, you know, back here, just in case. Just in case I'm outnumbered and need, need to, to brush everybody back. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very sincere when I say, I want you to take this very seriously. Among the many things the Lord's doing in this church is that we're not going to start playing around with sins. And we're not going to start um, grading them as more or less serious, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to fight against that. And so, honestly, probability, just not because I know you guys, but just the probability, what I'm about to say, if you really do want to be like Jesus, should probably devastate you a little bit. And you need to be careful not to minimize that. Own it. Just, just... There's always grace, right? The grace, the grace to help you change, the grace to help you grow. But don't sit through the rest of this message trying not to own a serious problem in your life. And it is probably, likely, possibly a serious problem in your life. So the fourth point is this. Mind your own business. Share the gospel. We often think that these two statements are in contradiction. There's kind of a Midwestern vibe. I've grown up in the Midwest. This sort of Midwestern undercurrent of mind your own business. Be polite. Don't meddle. These are the kind of sentiments that dissuade us, nice Midwesterners, from sharing the gospel. But as servants of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel is our business. Sharing the gospel is our business because servants are supposed to be about their master's business. And Jesus, our master, has come to seek and save the lost. And even though Jesus has for a time stopped walking amongst us, this parable is here to tell you that he is very much interested in continuing to work through you. He leaves these servants to engage in his business. And the third servant, this should scare us to death, the third servant proved himself to be a false servant because he refused to engage in the master's business. You see, I'm concerned that the prosperity gospel, the error of an over-realized eschatology, has affected us more deeply and in ways we do not suspect of. Prosperity gospel says that we can have all of Jesus without any of his sufferings. Friends, I want you to be careful. Because one of his sufferings was social reproach for speaking the truth. And you may have concocted some sort of formula in your head where you expect evangelistic opportunities to appear out of thin air in which there are no consequences and no difficulties and no awkwardness and no offense. That's the prosperity gospel. 
That's what that is. You expect to participate in Jesus' business just without fellowshipping in his sufferings. That's an overrealized eschatology. That's the error Jesus is addressing. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, engaging in the action of seeking and saving the lost, and was socially rejected, relationally cut off, slandered against, his own family was confused by him, misunderstood, minimized. And if you think that you can be a servant of Jesus without experiencing those things, you're wrong. It is fundamental sin to divorce ourselves from Jesus when it comes to suffering. That is not at all the message of the Bible. And you cannot claim to identify with Christ without, while outright rejecting his mission statement to seek and save the lost. So let me give you just a few, a few points I think are important to, to, to get. First of all, you do not find him delightful if you find his mission tedious. This is what he came to do. Friends, you know, if I were, if I were back in the, if I, if, if I weren't, weren't married and I was, you know, doing one of those, those Christian dating services, you know, uh, like, you know, I, I would be concerned if like I met a woman and she's like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And she's like, oh, that's just so gross and weird and awkward. And you might have to like go meet with like 15, you know, community groups one day. And, you know, no, no. <laughs> No, I've, I've, I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that. Uh, no, but I would be, I, I would just, I would just walk away if this girl says, you know, like, ugh, like, you know, I like you, of course, but, uh, but, but the mission, uh, no, the mission is just, it's just weird and awkward and no, thank you. Friends, you do not find Jesus delightful if you find his mission offensive. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he's doing today. That's what he's about today. So we would comfort ourselves by talking about how much we love Jesus. Jesus would always say what, right? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And that's the second point. You cannot call him Lord and disobey him. And you cannot call yourself a servant if you do not serve him. If you do not take the treasure of the gospel that he's deposited in you and share it and invest it so that it would multiply, you cannot say that equipping is the primary problem since all that is being asked of you is to share the very thing you claim to believe in. Right? Like, if you have enough faith to believe and to be transformed... And you have everything you need. I, I, I'm not saying that if you come to me and say, help me, I will say, just go do it, man. You're fine. Not saying that at all. I'm just saying that that can't be the excuse. You can't say that you delight in the gospel while being ashamed of it. So let me pivot here. Because what's happening in this parable isn't just a message to the servants about sharing the gospel or a message to the servants about being diligent. What's happening is actually the gospel. And you could be here this morning 
investigating the claims of Christ. You could be here this morning thinking through these issues and wondering kind of what, what exactly is on the table here, what's actually being presented, and how is it different from other things that I've heard. So I just want to be really clear about what the gospel is, and gospel is in this passage. Uh, so the first thing is this. Uh, God is in charge. It says in the, in the passage that, that this ruler went to receive a kingdom. And that, again, I, this is referring to a historical event that happened probably 35 years before Jesus is saying these words. But the first thing I would tell you if you're here and you're investigating claims of Christ, you're thinking through these things, is simply this. God is God. He is not running for the office of God, and he is not seeking your vote. Uh, he just is. And your assent to that reality is not going to change that reality. Uh, Jesus is the rightful ruler of all things. That's, that's a fundamental claim to Christianity, that he's the ruler of all things, even the citizens who despise him and don't want him to rule over them. So he lived a perfect life, and he deserves the worship of everyone who's ever been made and you can oppose this arrangement if you'd like to, but it won't matter. Because his authority over the kingdom is absolutely secure. So I would urge you, believing that, it would be consistent of me, because I believe that, and you think that's crazy, but it would be consistent and loving of me to urge you, because I believe that God's in charge, that Jesus is the ruler of all things, it would be consistent of me and loving of me to urge you to be reconciled to this God. Not because it's going to affect his status, but because if you're living in contradiction to the whole fabric of reality, that's probably there's probably some consequences to that. The second thing I would say is this. God is invisible, yes. In this parable, the ruler leaves. God is invisible, but you can see his servants. One of the functions the servants had in this parable would have been to demonstrate to his enemies that he is a good ruler. In fact, in many ways, we often hear this excuse that, well, I don't know about God, I'm agnostic about God, I'm looking for evidence about God. And I would just say, honestly, there's probably a bunch of evidence right now, actually I can say there is, a bunch of evidence in your life right now that shows that God exists, that he is powerful and good. And one of the best evidences, the Bible says, is that his servants love each other, care for each other, even though socioeconomic boundaries would suggest they shouldn't or wouldn't, forgive each other with a radical forgiveness, care for each other in ways that just extends beyond what you would see in the world. And so if you're here today and you're investigating the claims of Christ, you're thinking through these things, I'd say there is a God. I really want you to believe in him. He's not visible right now, but his servants are. And if you investigate their lives, you'll see evidence that something's at work in them that is far beyond explanation. And one day, you will be called to account for the evidence that you saw all around you. And the third thing I would tell you is this. There are three types of sinners, but just one kind of sin. Or two types of sinners, but just one kind of sin. So you have these two different groups of people in this story. You have the overt 
agnostic, atheist, you know, I, I don't believe this or I don't want this man ruling over us. This is, these are the bad guys, right? They're supposedly the bad guys. Uh, <laughs> they're, the, they're the ones who just overt, like, this is nonsense. I don't believe in this. Um, and then there's the good old boys who are moral and they look like they belong in the church. They look like they fit in and they're not servants either. In this passage, there are actually two kinds of enemies, one of which is really just open about it, and the other is passive and quiet and, 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 si- and, and subtle about it. But it's still the same sin. And that is, he's in charge. That's just, that's just the way things are. And we either submit to that or we don't. And some of us are overt in our rebellion, and some of us are subversive in our rebellion, but every person, the Bible says, has fallen short of living up to the authority that he's declared over the world. So that in various ways, some morally uh, looking better than others, we fall short of obeying. We all live in rejection and rebellion of God. And that's what the Bible says is sin. It's a refusal to acknowledge who he is and that he deserves our lives, our love. He is worthy of those things. And number four, your excuses will condemn you. The day is coming because God is God. He's not running for the office of God. He just is. And you will one day see him, meet him face to face if all this is true. If it's not, then of course it's not, right? But but let's just talk about if it is. You will, you will one day stand before him and you will no doubt have an excuse like this third servant did. And in a way that you perhaps can't think of right now, but I could probably help you see, honestly, uh, anybody that kind of could help you see that the very excuses you're using right now not to follow God could be shown to be used against you in other ways of your life, right? So, so that... that, that that if you're saying, well, there's just not enough evidence, then it would be very easy to point to all the other things you believe that have no evidence, right? If you say that, that God just needed to be, uh, just, there's a lot of bad stuff in the world, and, and I just can't believe in a God where there's a lot of bad stuff in the world. Do you really want to talk about bad stuff to a being who sees your heart and your dreams and your alone time and your internet history? <laughs> So the day is coming when you'll stand before this God, who is God, whether you want him to be or not, and uh, your excuses will condemn you. But there is another way. You can be a servant of Jesus. And as a servant of Jesus, you can take on his name and his righteousness. And that's what we're so happy about when we talk about the gospel. The gospel means good news. And what we mean by good news is simply this. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That our long history of stealing God's gifts and turning our back on him, our long history of exchanging the gift for the giver, of worshiping the creation over the creator, God's given you so much and you're just using it right now. You're not, you're not serving him. You're just stealing it. You're just All of that sin, all of that rebellion, all of that unbelief, Jesus, though he didn't need to, he, he was perfect. He did it all right offered up his heart to be the vessel in which God would put your sin and pour out his wrath, the due punishment for your sin on Jesus. 
so that there's this other way. You can stand before God as a servant of Jesus. And here's my plan. When I stand before the Father, I'm going to stand behind Jesus. <laughs> right? That's my plan. And that's what the good news is. That Jesus can stand in your place. And that everything you've ever done that was wrong could be not just forgotten, but actually paid for so that there's justice in the universe. And then he will give you, if you place your faith in him and what he's done for you on the cross, he will give you a small treasure and the faith to use it well. And that you will live this life with purpose, having clarity of what you're supposed to do. And sometimes you'll get punched in the face by the pastor for something you're not doing right. And then you'll find fresh faith and hope to obey him and to leave and Make a course correction and grow and continue to improve and continue to be more like Jesus. And this whole thing will continue. You'll have this purpose in your life, this clarity. You'll be living in harmony with the universe and the creator of the universe. And this thing will continue until one day you stand before God and then he gives you a reward like 10 cities that doesn't at all fit (laughs) however good you've been. That's the gospel. So if you're here today and that's news to you, I would urge you to be reconciled to this God who has made it possible for you to know him, be be loved by him, walk with him, and enjoy him forever. But if you're here today and you know this news, what am I going to tell you to do? If you're here today and you say that's good news, what am I going to expect? What does Jesus expect you to do with it? He expects you to be Big dreaming, small working, hum, hard working, but humble servant of the king. And invest the treasure he's given to you into the world. And let me tell you something. The only way the gospel doesn't multiply in your life is when you hide it. At Crosshaven, I've become a bit of an of, of a epidemiologist. Um, I... I, I watch where the germs go like because because we have these all these kids running around they spread germs everywhere and uh i figured out that it's always the chip bag we have a chip bag on the table and the kids reach their hands into the chip bag and instead of just pulling a couple chips out they touch every you know touch every chip and uh before you know it, our whole church is sick and what i see in this parable is this that the treasure that god's given you will multiply as long as you don't quarantine it Spurgeon said of this guy that hid the, hid the gospel in the handkerchief, he said, the very handkerchief he should have used to wipe the sweat off his brow after a hard day's obedience, he used to hide the gospel. So if this is new to you, this is the gospel. I would invite you to step forward in faith and believe. Just say yes. Say yes. And if this isn't new to you, then consider yourselves strongly encouraged to make this week different than last week. Let's pray. God, I lift up uh, those here who are saints, who have walked with you, who who have perhaps in one way or another... um, left their first love. 
and have lost the joy of their salvation and need this morning, Lord, to understand that this is not a minor thing. This is identity stuff. This is, this is core to who we are or who we aren't. And to take this seriously, Lord, I pray that godly action would come from this, that, that we would not be, have, have uh, any kind of false faith that is devoid of works. Um, and Lord, I, I lift up those here who are investigating these things and uh, who you've placed here this morning. I ask that you would give them the grace to believe in your gospel message, that they would see that they have indeed in their own way walked in rebellion against your rule and reign, um, perhaps never acknowledging that you're in charge, let alone asking you for instructions on how they should live when you've given those instructions very clearly in your word. Uh, that they have gone through this life embracing all of the gifts that you've handed them while never acknowledging any kind of gratitude or desire to obey you in those gifts. Lord, help them to see that one day they're going to stand before you, their excuses are going to be turned against them, and that uh, apart from you, apart from saving grace, there will be judgment. We didn't get to that in the text. That's in the text. There will be judgment for those who have rebelled against God. But through Jesus, we have a different way. We pray that you would give us faith this morning to see Jesus as this different way and that we would stand behind him and his righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.